Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. What is your connection to Israel or Palestine? My grandparents had to leave uh, Palestine in 1948 uh, to escape to Jordan from the Israeli occupation. I went on birthright like 10 years ago and I just kept going back and I ended up making Aliyah and I adore the country. As Americans, we're against all the violence, we seek for peace and we want peace for these people, they're human. And we cannot just do this genocide for all of them. My grandparents were born in Palestine. I don't expect any of the first world big countries to side with us. I am for peace. As a rabbi, I have so much love for so many Israelis and so many Palestinians in my life. That love and this grief is not available to be weaponized for a mass destruction of life in Gaza. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. We talk about a lot of hard stuff on this show. We do have fun, too. But as a show that is essentially asking how the United States can become the country we say we are, that means a lot of difficult conversations. I try not to exceptionalize any of these conversations. All of them are deeply personal and challenging for somebody listening. But it'd just be a lie to say the one we need to have this week isn't uniquely emotional. The news over the past week since Hamas launched its attack in southern Israel has been filled with death and destruction. Each story tallies the lives lost by nationality, like some kind of macabre scorekeeping of atrocities. And each time I read the tally, I shudder as I think about the people for whom one of those lives is a loved one. Which is to say that the stakes here are life and death, and they have been for a long time. So let me briefly lay out what I hope to do in this hour. We're not here as reporters. Our producers are, of course, keeping our eye on on breaking news, and we'll update you if something demands it. But we're not covering the news right now. We're also not promising some sort of two-side conversation about something that has unimaginable numbers of so-called sides. As of right now, the world is waiting for Israel's expected ground invasion of Gaza with the goal of ending Hamas's leadership and taking control of at least some of the territory around Gaza City. Over a million Gaza residents have been warned to flee south, food and water are running out, and the U.S. government has moved two warships into the region. So my questions today are, what do these developments mean for the people living in Gaza And what do they mean for the security of people living in Israel and for Jewish people around the world? I'm joined by two guests who have great personal stakes in these questions. Leila El-Haddad is an award-winning Palestinian author and journalist based in Clarksville, Maryland. 
Her most recent book is Gaza Mom, Palestine, Politics, Parenting, and Everything in Between. Anna Baltzer is a leader in the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights and a member of Jewish Voice for Peace. She is a Jewish-American granddaughter of Holocaust refugees, which is an important part of her story, and author of Witness in Palestine, A Jewish Woman in Occupied Territories. Anna and Layla, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. So as I said, this has been a horrific week and news is developing quickly. But Layla, to start, I understand you still have family in Gaza right now. So do you know if your family is okay? I do. I have my entire father's side and my entire mother's side of the family in different parts of the strip right now. Uh, literally seconds before I hopped on the program, my cousin just told me that there's the heaviest shelling they've experienced yet um, by Israeli um, fighter jets just adjacent to where they live in Gaza City. Um, I haven't heard back from her since, but I'm just hoping for the best. But this has been what it's like for the past week. Every you know hour, my phone is going off. The first last thing I do before I go to sleep is check if they're alive. And the first thing I do um, in the morning is, again, scroll through my WhatsApp and uh, make sure my phone is, you know, notifications are on all night long. Uh, so, so far, they've been safe. A couple of them have had their houses destroyed. Um, several of them have had to relocate three or four separate times to um, whatever they deem to be a safer location, of course, within uh, the Gaza Strip, uh, with the understanding that there is no real safe space. There are no bomb shelters and there is no exit or entry right now. All the borders are closed. How, how do they, and, I, and I'm sorry I won't dwell on it, but how do they process this question of safer space? I mean, how, how do they I make that choice? They, they, they process, they approximate normality and safety is the best way to put it. They, uh, My cousin sent me a picture of all of the uh, cousins huddled together, the younger ones, the children in the very narrow entryway of the home. Um, between two cement walls and um, all of them, 10 of them were, were just there. And that was the safest place that they could find during that particular um, bout of shelling. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they, she, there's a list, actually, there's a checklist that they showed me that they said, you want to make sure these are the things you need to have um, if there's active bombing or if you have to leave, you know, make sure that you have your um, phone with you, your passport, your identity document, some money um, and some water. So they have kind of like a checklist and they just keep moving around from one place to another. Several of them have lost um, access to uh, any water because the power will go off. They're charging their phones using these really kind of oversized batteries. um, But um, the electricity is required to operate the pumps that fill the water tanks, right? Um, The municipal water. Uh, and so it's not as though they can just open the tap like we can in the U.S. here at any moment and have an endless supply of water or like they can, of course, in a lot of the Israeli settlements. Um, but um, they ran out of water. Their sister-in-law had a little bit left. So they went over there to, you know, satiate themselves, to bathe and, and so on. Yeah. I-, I wanted to ask each of you uh, about your lifelong connections uh, to the region. Um, Layla, you've implied some of it here um, in talking about your family, but I'm thinking about going back a bit to your childhood. Um, If you can help folks um, give a sense of what your connection growing up to Gaza was. Um, Part of your work also has been writing about life in Gaza beyond the trauma uh, and uh, uh, and the challenges. So I just want to prompt you to sort of introduce people to your relationship to the place. 
No, I really appreciate that. And it's an important part of um, humanizing um, Palestinians. So uh, I myself was born in Kuwait to uh, Palestinian parents from Gaza um, who were born and raised there. They were both physicians. And I divided my time between Gaza and uh, the Gulf states, uh, namely Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. So all of our summers and our winters would be spent in Gaza um, and the rest of the time um, in Saudi Arabia, and then um, eventually uh, moved to the United States to study in the 90s and then back to Gaza in the early 2000s uh, to begin raise my young son and to um, uh, work there as a journalist. Um, my husband, whom I met while I was in graduate school in Boston, is also Palestinian, but he grew up in a refugee camp in Lebanon's uh, Bekaa Valley, and was the descendants of Palestinian refugees who were uh, displaced and forced from their homes in uh, northern historic Palestine surrounding uh, Haifa. And so he was never able to join our son and I when we would travel to Gaza during those years um, in and out of Gaza through um, through the Rafah crossing because he lacked the Israeli-issued um, paperwork that was required as a Palestinian to be able to uh, return and visit our own land. So... The irony was, you know, um, that any many of our Jewish friends um, in Boston could travel to Israel uh, in a moment's notice, um, could become citizens, and he himself uh, lacked the right of return to his own um, ancestral homeland. But um, the years I spent covering Gaza um, in the in the two thousands through the disengagement through the Israeli disengagement the process during which it dismantled the settlements and then retained effective control over Gaza through the elections in two thousand and six um, made me realize that I needed to do more than just cover the news in order to be able to convey the reality of what was going on and help people really connect on a human level. Um, with what was happening to the Palestinians. And so I began to blog about my experience. Um, this is before Facebook, before social media. It's <laughs> yeah. um, hard to remember a time when that was the case before iPhone was you know, um, even invented. Um, and so I had a blog I was keeping called Raising Yusuf, Diary of a Palestinian Mother that eventually turned into the book that you cited, Gazamon. And I remember thinking at the time for a long time, uh, that it was unnecessary or even, you know, frivolous to be able to document my life as a mother and to bring the personal into this. Yeah. You know, it was just so drilled into me that, uh, you know, I'm a professional, I'm a journalist. That's what people need to hear about, right? Yeah. The numbers, the fatalities, the, the atrocities. Um, and I was surprised to see how impactful my blog entries were. Even you know, a lot of Israelis were reading them and saying this is the first time that they even thought about a Palestinian in Gaza as a human being with a child looking for diapers or, you know, whatever to feed them. And um, and uh, so it, it made me realize that that's that human connection is, is what was needed. And then from there, I began to also utilize um, the intersection, write about the intersection of food, culture and politics in the context of Palestine yeah. uh, as well. So I'm... Anna, I want to begin your story as well. We're getting close to a break, so we're going to have to get started just to start it off, and then we'll we'll pick it up after the break. But I, you know, part of your activism and your scholarship has been your own journey and your family's relationship to Israel, correct? That's right. Yeah, I think like a lot of um, American Jews, I grew up with a notion that uh, Israel was there to keep us safe, that it was really the only hope Jews had to be safe. 
um, after, you know, uh, so many generations of horrible anti-Semitism, including what my own family faced in the Holocaust. And uh, so there was this sort of very simplistic narrative and that what, you know, whatever um, Israel did, it was attacked. And and I simply hadn't challenged that until I uh, met Palestinian families in Lebanon um, and was taking, taken in and heard a narrative I had never heard before. And so that was when you were 24 um, that, that, right. you, that you began to, to, to see something new. I'm going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and, look, and hear more about that story, Anna. Uh, I'm talking with Palestinian author and journalist Leila El Haddad and Anna Baltzer from the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights and a member of Jewish Voice for Peace about the impending ground invasion of Gaza in reaction to the Hamas attack in southern Israel last week, and about how we in the U.S. even talk to one another about what is happening there. We'll take your calls a little later in the show as well, so stay with us. I'm Kai Wright. This is Notes from America. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And as we watch headlines about the impending ground invasion of Gaza in reaction to attacks from Hamas last weekend in southern Israel, we're talking about what this means for not only the people of Gaza, but for Israelis and for all of us. I'm joined by Leila El-Haddad, who is an award-winning Palestinian author and journalist based in Clarksville, Maryland. She's the author of Gaza Mom, Palestine, Politics, Parenting, and Everything in Between. And by Anna Baltzer, who is a member of Jewish Voice for Peace. She is author of Witness in Palestine, A Jewish Woman in the Occupied Territories. And Anna, you were, before the break, giving us some of your family's story and your relationship to the region. Um, You mentioned how important, the the way you were taught to think about safety, uh, and it being rooted in your grandmother's life story. Can you just say more about that understanding in your childhood? Yeah. Um, there was a narrative that uh, Jews would always be targeted and that somehow safety would come from creating uh, a Jewish state. Um, and it was when I uh, visited Palestinians in southern Lebanon that I heard for the first time a very different story, a story of families being violently pushed out of their homes and lands, of of hundreds of Palestinian villages destroyed. And my first reaction was disbelief because, you know, like I was saying, it just completely contradicted this narrative I'd had for my whole life of Israel being a place of of securing uh, Jews. And uh, it, it was, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. 
But I did, I was motivated enough to go and see with my own eyes. And it became very clear that the entire premise of uh, creating Israel as a Jewish state, that you can't have a Jewish state without a Jewish majority. And Palestine does not have a Jewish majority. And so creating Israel required for creating a Jew, an artificial Jewish majority was the violent expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who became refugees, the ongoing apartheid uh, and oppressive uh, occupation of um, Palestinian lands. And, you know, as Leila said, um, uh, the, the vast majority of Palestinians inside Gaza are refugees who, you know, I, uh, Israel would pay me to leave my home here, my comfortable life here in California, to go and live on those Gaza families' lands, um, whereas they can't even visit. This is the reality of what it means to have a Jewish state, which, of course, could never secure, <laughs> would never be what uh, ensure safety for Jews. If that were only, if that were the only thing that mattered, which of course it isn't, that uh, Jewish safety can never come through the oppression of another people. That that we will always see resistance when any population is oppressed, and so it was. It it was a myth. Hmm. And. And you said that you, so you got a, a Fulbright scholarship, I think at 24, you said it, where you started traveling. What was it like for you to encounter the reality of that, which, which you're calling a myth? How, I mean, and I asked this question just because again, so many people, there are many people, and I'm going to be frank, there are many of us who chose a long time ago to just kind of turn away from this this story mm -hmm. because it is very difficult. It is full of misunderstanding. Uh, even the words we choose are, are pointedly political choices. Um, and for those of us who don't have a personal stake, it is very easy to simply say, ah, I just, I'll stay out of this. Um, you know, and so that is why I'm pursuing this line of questioning. And so I'm, I'm wondering the moment where you as a young person start to say, oh, I have to challenge what I the received narrative in my family and my community, how did just take me to that moment and what that was like for you? Yeah. Um, well, you know, at first it was obviously very upsetting to um, to have this sort of foundational understanding challenge. Um, but the truth is that ultimately, understanding the way that that Israel was uh, was violently oppressing Palestinians which um understanding that it wasn't the case that our safety could come through violent oppression of people but rather um that Palestinians who 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 welcomed me i mean i don't mean just in lebanon i mean all over palestine of all political persuasions i was not once uh discriminated against as a jew um it became very clear that, you know, Jewish safety would never come from oppressing Palestinians. And in fact, that our liberation is intertwined. Um, and in, in many ways, that was a uh, feeling of hope um, that truly, you know, this isn't some sort of cycle of violence that is inevitable, that it is very clear the origin of, you know, of any violence, and that is Israel's oppression of Palestinians. Um, and that gives us an opportunity to come together and fight against oppression. And we know, um, yeah, we, we have seen what it takes to stop Israel's oppression, and it means all of us coming together um, and saying no. Layla, what you were nodding when I was talking about kind of pulling out 
of the conversation about this um, for those of us who don't have stakes. Um, what do you, what do you say when you encounter people in the United States like myself who you know said a while ago ah, on some level whether we admit to or not I'm going to just turn off turn off from this. I think that we can't afford to turn off from this because. Um, because we're complicit. I mean, if, if I, you know, I could almost understand it if it was anywhere else in the world, but because we as American taxpayers are complicit in the crimes that are being committed, we pay more money, more of our tax dollars go to assisting um, the Israeli military in, in um, committing these crimes uh, against humanity, against Palestinians than to any other country in the world. And for that fact alone, um, we should uh, tune in and, you know, understand, educate ourselves, um, seek uh, accurate resources on what's happening um, and and then re-engage. Yeah. And I mean, one of the basic things I think a lot of people listening will say and uh, is, is certainly and we're going to have a chance to talk about in detail the history that led to the moment of last week. Um, but in the immediate, for those of us, for people who haven't been following and maybe don't know that history, seeing the images um, of Hamas's attack on civilians in southern Israel this time last week, a lot of folks just cannot get past that. Just would not get past that. It's very difficult to see past that. And I don't. And I guess I should even choose those words differently because we shouldn't see past that. Um, but how do you process that kind of moment? Um, uh, particularly thinking of people who don't know the broader context. Absolutely. Look, the, the loss of any human life is tragic. This is something that I always emphasize universally. Um, but the reality of the fact is Palestinian suffering um, and violence against Palestinians, structural, systematic, and otherwise, um, has been ignored for so long, normalized, and we've been so desensitized to it, um, due in large part to you know a deliberate campaign to dehumanize Palestinians to other Palestinians, uh, in the, the words of Edward Said, I encourage everyone to read the question of Palestine, um, that it it doesn't register. You know, I think people, again, this isn't in any way to justify um, uh, violence um, or the loss of, of civilian life in any way. But the fact is, we've been so desensitized that it doesn't, you know, we're not alarmed when a Palestinian uh, dies, Right. But we're very alarmed when a Jewish Israeli dies. This is just a fact of the matter. And we we need to recognize that and um, respond, you know, accordingly. Um, you know, I always also want to remind people it's it's also what the media chooses to focus on, right, to, to center um, and to amplify. And, and this is another fact. Anyone who's been in media will tell you if you look at the data and the statistics, and I'm sure Anna can agree, um, they have disproportionately... Um, covered the loss of Israeli life and the impact on Israelis uh, more than they have on Palestinians. Um, and finally, I just like to emphasize that this this story doesn't begin and end with Hamas or the recent um, attacks. Um, this is just sort of a pretext, uh, right, to the continuation um, of, of Israeli violence uh, against Palestinians. And it's very important to understand that. Um, because if we don't, it's just going to kind of pave the way for for continued um, attacks uh, uh, against Palestine. Listeners, we can take your calls. As I have said, perhaps too repeatedly, this is a tough conversation. I have found it tough. There's a lot I feel like I don't understand. And the stakes are life and death for many, many people. Um, so if you share that feeling and you have questions about how to engage, call us or text us. 
Uh, Layla, a a basic level setting question here. We're obviously, you mentioned Hamas. We're obviously hearing a lot about Hamas, which the U.S. government classifies as a terrorist organization. It's hard for a lot of people to move past those words and past the acts of violence that we witnessed last weekend. But what exactly is Hamas's role in Gaza? So Hamas, I just want to be clear here. Um, the When you say, you know, obviously, according to the United States and many Western powers, Hamas is a terrorist organization. But I do want to remind people, and again, my background is in political science and public policy, so I'm speaking here from that perspective, um, that that is an opinion of, you know, many world governments and not a fact. Um it is a local political movement, and like any local political movement, it has supporters and it has detractors. And um, in 2006, actually, let me backtrack a few years, Hamas came onto the scene in 1987. That's when they were founded, right? Many decades um, after the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948 um, and around the time of the first Palestinian uprising in 1987. Um, so they weren't even on the scene decades before. It was many other groups. It was the Palestinian um, Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine. It was Fatih. Then they came on, and um, they just happened to be kind of the latest bogeyman, right? They weren't um, a major power broker until the early 2000s. Um, and they decided to enter the political scene in 2005 after the Israeli disengagement from Gaza, and they ran for... Um, the the first major Palestinian elections in 2006, and they won, and no one saw it coming. Um, Hillary Clinton in leaked documents had even said that we should have, as an American government, stopped this before it started. Um, and then and then the CIA pumped millions of dollars um, of money um, into an attempt at a coup uh, to overthrow them, and um, and hundreds of thousands of arms entered Gaza as a result. Again, this has been documented. There's a great article written about it called the Gaza Bombshell. That didn't work either. There was a counter coup by Hamas that ultimately led to the um, eviction of Fatih, the other rival party, and then their takeover um, of Gaza. I say all this because the context is important. Again, context, context. If they had been allowed to govern and perhaps fail and perhaps uh, succeed, who knows, like any other political party, um, and things were allowed to run their course and they were you know, established into the political spectrum um, then things might, might not have gone so awry um, as, as you know, some might see it. Um, and so, I mean, in summary, that's what I have to, sorry, I even forgot the original question at this point. Well, but I wanted I, to know the context of what, what Hamas, Hamas's role is in, uh, uh, right, in Gaza okay, yes. society. So, uh, so but, yeah, so that, so sorry, I'll just end briefly by, by adding, so they are a political movement and, but the, and they, they were the elected government in 2006 before they were, you know, um, it, there was an attempt to overthrow them by the CIA. And and then after they won, an immediate um, comprehensive blockade was imposed on Gaza by Israel, supported by the United States, supported by Europe and supported even by um, many Arab countries. Um, and that blockade has been 17 years longstanding against the civilian population um, of yeah. Gaza. They, in addition to being a political move, movement, have a social welfare wing that provides um, schooling, educational orphanages in Gaza, um, in addition to their military wing. Um, and so this is just giving, again, sheerly political context. And I'm going um, to stop you there. I think we, I think, we've, we've got a full picture of it, or at least partial sure, sure. of a picture of it. Anna, 
in this conversation, um, and you know, our, our calls are coming in, but in this conversation, uh, I use if I say the word, if I say Hamas, many people think terrorist. If I say, um, if if I refer to if I talk about violence in the region, um, and I'm speaking to one group of people, they immediately think about Palestinians. If I'm talking say violence in the region, and I'm talking to another people, they they immediately think about southern Israel or think about Israeli defense forces. As you try to have a conversation in your community about peace um, and about how to face how to have a different version of security, how do you deal with the fact that like people are looking at actual dead like a week like this, people are looking at actual killed civilians. And I can't imagine that there's an appetite to hear big ideas like the ones that we just heard from Layla about, well, this is what Hamas really is. It's hard. Um, and uh, it's uh, necessary. Um, you know, as Leila was speaking to the context of this, you know, what Hamas, uh, what Palestinians are going through after 75 years of uh, incredible violence, of ethnic cleansing, of um, being targeted with such brutality, of kidnapping, of murder, what we see in Gaza being denied food, water, medicine, people, uh, Gazans can't fish, Gazans are shot when they farm, Gazans are bombed constantly. Um, you know, this is not a reality that anybody would accept. And, you know, for the, I'm 44 years old, and for the first time in my entire lifetime, um, you know, we saw this kind of, of violence used against Israelis. And it's, um, you know, this this is not a life anyone would accept. This is not a life that, you know, my ancestors in the Warsaw Ghetto accepted or that South Africans accepted under a, a, a apartheid. And, you know, after 75 years, after hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have been targeted, and, you know, if, if you're someone who quietly watched as Palestinians have been murdered and dispossessed for 75 years, and then after Israelis are brutally killed in one day, and suddenly you're a champion of human rights, you know, that's not morality, it's just racism. Um, any form of Palestinian resistance has been repressed. You know, I've seen it with my own eyes, peaceful marches, people are shot at, people are tear gassed. You know, there's cultural resistance, Palestinian hip hop, um, you know, advocating for themselves in the UN and the International Court of Justice, the everyday resistance of going to school, of, uh, you know, carrying on daily life. Every type of resistance is violently oppressed. And, uh, um, you know, we, we cannot expect too many people, half of them children, to, um, we can't expect Israel to imprison two million people and not and not pay a heavy price. I'm, I'm uh, quoting an Israeli journalist. It's not about justifying, it's about being realistic. If we're serious about seeing peace, we have to work for justice. And that means ending this uh, brutal siege and uh, apartheid system. We need to take a break. I'm talking with Anna Baltzer of Jewish Voice for Peace and with Palestinian author and journalist Leila El-Haddad. And we can take your calls, and we will hear from you after a break. Stay with us. Hi, everyone. My name is Rahima, and I help produce the show. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Here's how. 
First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says start recording. Finally, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle for both is notes with Kai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and we are talking this week about Israel's expected ground invasion of Gaza in reaction to an attack from Hamas last weekend. What it means not only for the people of Gaza, but for Israelis seeking security and for all of us. I'm joined by Anna Baltzer, a member of Jewish Voice for Peace. She is author of Witness in Palestine, A Jewish Woman in the Occupied Territories, and by Leila El-Haddad, who is an award-winning Palestinian author and journalist based in Clarksville, Maryland. Her most recent book is Gaza Mom, Palestine, Politics, Parenting, and Everything in Between. Uh, And Anna, one of the things we're hearing an enormous amount of via text message um, is that this is an incredibly unbalanced conversation. Um, that um, uh, we are not presenting more than one side of this conversation. I, I, I guess I put that to you to start. Uh, how would you respond to that? Um, I would respond that if there is a situation in which one country has complete control of another people, has expelled violently the vast majority of them, and then ghettoizes and brutalizes them, and is able to cut off water and electricity and food, and uh, and has complete control and is able to bomb, um, you know, any house and hospital and school at once. Um, in a situation like that, being neutral is not moral. Being neutral only enables the ongoing injustice that is the root uh, of the problem. Um, you know, there's a word I haven't used yet here, and that is genocide. We are talking about an impending genocide that fits the the definition of, of the word genocide, and there's a lot being written about it um, now. You know, to be neutral in a situation of genocide uh, is uh, is unconscionable. Um, yes, we want peace. We want we want a world uh, of safety for everybody, but that does not come through brutally uh, bombing one million children. Um, and and uh, this the sort of prioritization of of Jewish feelings over. Palestinian lives, the the you know reporting of Israeli deaths and not Palestinian deaths. If you have a situation where um, you know thousands of Palestinians are killed, as we've seen over the years, um, where you'll you'll have a situation where thousands of Palestinians are killed through Israeli bombs, and a small number of Israelis are killed. When you see a balanced reporting of both of those, is that balance or is that distortion? We see distortion when we attempt to um, be neutral on this issue. Um, there is not a Jewish side or a Palestinian side. The, the premise that we have sort of 
the Jewish perspective and feelings and the Palestinian perspective and feelings. No, this is a, a situation of grave injustice and anybody who cares about justice and racial justice and indigenous struggle. And, you know, Palestine is a racial justice issue. It's a feminist issue. It's a queer issue. It's a, a reproductive justice issue. Um, if you if you care about ending genocide and state violence, then you should be with this struggle. And it doesn't matter what religion you come from or background. Um, there are many, many Jews who are part of this movement. Um, and it is it is the path to liberation for all of us. Let's go to Paul Adam in Maplewood, New Jersey. Paul, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi. Hi, Kyra. Hi, Kyra. Right. Uh, excellent to be on in these these times. May a miracle, may a miracle happen in peace. B'shalom. B'eretz Kodesh. V'brit. That means may... Uh, that means peace in the Holy Land, the Holy Land and the Promised Land in, in Hebrew. I would say it in Salaamu Alaikum. I, Mike, well, it, it's a comment and it's a question tied in. The comment is that in Jewish law, it's a Jewish law mitzvah, a commandment, as in Exodus. In Exodus we, I am Jewish, by the way, um, just but to make this clear also, I disagree with, I would really like to say bye-bye to BB, everyone on and who's listening who would know what I mean would know what I mean. Uh, I disagree completely with, I disagree with Prime Minister BB Netanyahu's policies. I, just, I see them as they are not the correct response or approach to this situation. We need more pragmatism and more cooperation. And in Exodus, it says, "Well, we are, we are." It says, "You shall not wrong or mistreat the non-Jewish people who you live with." Essentially, coexist. This is three thousand years ago. We're talking within the land that you inherit. Thank you for that, Paul Adam. I'm going to stop you there. Uh, just to get more calls in, but I hear the point that uh, you are hearing in Jewish law, uh, a maxim that that would challenge uh, Israeli policy. That's that's what I'm hearing. Uh, Anna, do you agree that that's what that's what you're hearing from Paul Adam? Yes, that's that's what I'm hearing. And there's nothing Jewish about bombing Palestinian children. Um, the way that Israel co-ops the the the. Uh, you know, identity and notion of Jewishness is highly offensive. Um, and indeed, there's uh, there is nothing Jewish about what Israel is doing, on the contrary. Uh, let's go to uh, Nizam in Houston. Nizam, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. I, I have a question and a comment. I believe the one of the reasons why we ignore or even distaste the Palestinians, and we totally ignore their death, suffering for the last 70 years, has to do also with a with lot of deep-seated prejudice in American society, more pronounced in American South, not, uh, not surprisingly. I live in American South, so I do see specifically among the evangelicals. And the common, very simplistic belief is that Whatever is Arab is Muslim, and whatever is Muslim is Arab. So 
they are so they are violent by nature. So they have to be killed, and they have to be violently treated. And Israel is doing the right thing, and they can totally ignore it. And they totally ignore that um, there are Palestinian Christians, there are other minorities in whole Arabia, which again is another form of racism because it totally ignores the minority Arab population. And so I believe we need to go back and we need to elucidate this long existing historical prejudice, sometimes conscious, sometimes unconscious, sometimes even subconscious. I have seen among in, in educated people, they hold similar views. I'm, so I'm I also stop. invite people. I'm going to yep. stop you there, Nizam. Thank you. Uh, and, I, I, and that makes me think about the fact that we're hearing reports um, already of uh, at least increased awareness of or concern about hate crime, both um, hate crime directed against Jewish Americans and hate crime directed against people perceived to be Muslim in the United States. Um, are either of you, Layla, are, are Anna hearing that as well in your communities? Um, and, um, and what do you think about it? Go ahead. Yes, as a matter of fact, um, I don't know if, Anna, you heard the news, but right before we got on this program, there was a six-year-old who was stabbed to death. I want to say, was it in Chicago? Um, uh, by the, by his landlord, um, a Muslim uh, child, um, just about an hour ago. And, and I was looking at my messages as we were speaking that a friend of mine, um, his two daughters had written Free Gaza and a sand dune, and I don't know uh, which state they were in, and got um, assaulted um, by a man that was um, walking by. So absolutely, I mean, I won't lie, I'm looking over my shoulder, I wear hijab, and uh, so does my daughter, and, you know, I hike a lot whenever I'm out alone, um, at night, um, you know, I have a free Palestine sticker on my car, so I'm very nervous, but um, it kind of makes me feel the way I felt um, um, shortly after 9-11. I was in Boston, and um, I was terrified to walk uh, on the, in the streets by myself. Um, but certainly, you know, I mentioned this earlier in the program, um, a, lot of, a lot of the policies that we see are, are fueled by this kind of anti-Arab um, Islamophobic sentiment and othering, um, right, of the Palestinians and the Israeli journalist um, Gideon Levy has spoken quite a bit about this, uh, Palestinians, un unhumans, right? Um, they don't love their children the way um, we do. They teach their children to hate. They don't love life. We, we hear these refrains over and over, most famously made by um, former Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir, in which she said, I will never forgive the Palestinians for forcing us to kill their children. Anna, are, are, are you hearing anything about this in your community as well? I mean, just to to speak to what Layla was just saying, that, um, you know, we know what happens when people are called animals. Um, you know, I, I don't use the word genocide lightly, um, but, you know, we it's, you know, it's very easy to see this as something happening across the world. And, you know, the stories that that you just told about what's happening here in the U.S. And moreover, the fact that what Israel is doing is, is with billions of dollars of U.S. military aid every year, that we're scrambling to send more weapons over there. We are not separate. We are um, very much a part of this. Um, and we send those billions of dollars while people here in the U.S. do not have their basic needs met you know, healthcare, schools. We send these weapons 
to be experimented on on Palestinians that are then brought back to this country and used against communities of color here in the U.S. So like in so many ways, what's happening over them impacts all of us here in this country. Um, and I hope you'll you'll give a chance at some point at the end to talk about what we do about all of this yeah. um because uh, you know the 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 war did not just begin <laughs> the the stories we've heard about what's happening in Gaza are everyday occurrences and Israel has been waging a, a one-sided war against Palestinians um there is no military solution we need to act together now and I'm happy to talk about ways can I just for the sake of time I want to ask what one uh, caller is asking directly can talking about uh, our two guests, can either of them state that Hamas was wrong? I mean, I can, uh, the, you know, the, the killing of civilians is uh, completely in, in, uh, against international law. Um, Palestinians have the right to break out of an illegal cage that they have been forced to live in for decades uh, and to see uh, um, and to to live in freedom on their own lands, uh, Palestinians even have a right to um, resist against their military occupiers. Um, but Palestinians do not legally have a right to target um, Israeli civilians, which Hamas, of course, did. Um, and I, I would simply say that you know the 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 fixation on you know trapping Palestinians and others into, you know, rallying all of our efforts to condemn Hamas at a time when uh, so many more Palestinians are, are are being threatened with genocide. I would just ask, why are Palestinian lives so much less important than Jewish-Israeli lives? It's not either or, but it's about understanding the context in which this happens, our complicity in it, and addressing the root issues, because of course we want everybody to be able to live in freedom and safety, including Israelis. Let's go to Montana in New York. Montana, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Uh, like Anna, I'm the Jewish granddaughter of uh, Eastern European Jews who escaped the Holocaust. I'm a college professor in Ohio, and there is enormous pressure to take a stand, to wave a flag and stand with Israel or stand with Palestine. In my efforts to educate but not indoctrinate my students, I actually showed them a video that I found on YouTube uh, by Anna Baltzer just the other day, and I'm very excited that she's on the program. My question is that I'm in this impossible dilemma where it's really not acceptable, as Anna said, to remain neutral when this tragedy is happening and there's an impending genocide. And yet um, it's hard not to tip into the balance for me. Like I assign my students a bunch of documentaries that show the predicament of the Palestinians, but I'm always under threat of being seen as, you know, leaning one side or the other. And yet in Ohio, there's so little awareness of the entire situation. So what, as a professor can I do to, you know, stay on the side of empathy for everyone and yet present the reality of what Anna has laid out in her presentation? Thanks, Montana. Anna, you, can you respond? Well, I also want to give Leila the chance because I've spoken a lot. <laughs> well, only because it was a direct question for you. So let's each of you um, maybe give a quick few seconds response, Anna, and then Leila, you respond as well. Yeah, I... Um... You know, I, 
I, I struggled to put into words, uh, you know, how to, to navigate this. I just got a text from a dear friend last night who said, um, you know, I've spent so many, a, a amazing feminist uh, college professor, I've spent so many years with a discipline to, you know, build an analysis around Palestine and, un and unlearn the story that I heard as a Jewish American um, about Israel being a place of safety for us. And she said, it all disappeared and I went back to this sort of primal fear. Um, so she said, like, my reptilian brain <laughs> took over, you know, like people are in a state of shock right now. And I do like I'm coming to understand that there is a need to understand that people are um, are moving through you know, the, the, the emotions of what happened. Um, but ultimately, maybe this isn't directly speaking to your question, but, you know, I think Palestinians, if we don't stand up, Palestinians are taking all of the heat of, of what is happening. I think that you do not have to agree with what Hamas did to, to acknowledge the reality of this context and to know that when we fight and, for justice for Palestinians, we are fighting for justice for, for everybody. And Layla, unfortunately, we are wrapping up. Um, can you respond? And you get the last word. And, and no, we're not. We, we haven't come to resolve this issue. We've come to start talking about it. So um, floor is yours, Layla. The, I'm sorry, what did you want me to address just generally? or I, Where would you leave us, one? And two, if you had a, a response to, um, uh, to the caller's question about how she can engage. How, could, how she can engage her students yes. or just generally? Yeah. I mean, I echo everything Anna said. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people are having kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Again, it, but I mean, I, I just plead with people to remember what happens when, um, you know, uh, I'm slaughtering the quote here, my apologies, it's been a long day, but when good people <laughs> stay silent, um, you know, whether it was the beginning of the war on Iraq, which I remember very clearly, um, you know, we can go decades before that, Japanese internment, we can go to, you know, the Asian Exclusion Act, and on and on and on. Um, this is a universal issue. This is an anti-colonial struggle. Um, everything Anna said about this being, you know, um, a feminist struggle, this being um, uh, an anti-racist struggle, um, echo. And and I urge people to remember those overriding um, themes um, that this isn't just about Hamas. This isn't even just about Palestinians, right? Um, this is an anti-apartheid struggle. And most uh, most of all, this is a struggle for freedom and for humanity. Leila El-Haddad is a Palestinian author and journalist based in Maryland. Anna Baltzer is a member of Jewish Voice for Peace. I thank you both for sitting with us through this difficult conversation. We're going to return to it, listeners. Uh, and I will say I hear uh, a number of folks who have said, hey, I want to hear another side to this. Um, I think there are multiple sides, so we're going to come at it again. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. We'll be with you again next week. Thanks for listening. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. 
Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.